Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 130 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always and forever, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Uh, hey. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. You know, I'm also here forever. I know. I'm just, here's the thing. I'm really excited because Toby's back. I'm back, baby. Um, And you're back for the foreseeable future, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm going to be on every episode. Um, I'm sure there's a, you know, a part of the fan base that's like, oh, no, but too bad, suckers. Too bad, Paige knows. That's what I call the fan base that doesn't like me, Paige knows. I don't think so, Toby. I think there's people that haven't been listening because they miss you so much. Wow. I like that fantasy. I should let the listeners, Pageos and Page Knows, know that Dylan and I have the adult version of croup, which we got from our baby, aka laryngitis, strep throat or something. So if we have especially sexy voices right now, that's what's up. Croup sounds is one of those, like there are many things that I feel like babies get involved with or suffer from that sound like they haven't changed since like 1908. Yeah. And croup definitely falls into that category. Well, it's called the croup too. Um, yeah, it definitely sounds like, you know, mumps or something. But, you know, she's better now. And now we're all sick. And she's like, la la la. <laughs> so strutting around. Strutting. Um, does anybody have any shame? I have no shame. No shame. Um, uh oh. I have no shame. Excellent. Um, well, Bailey, I don't have any shame. And Pageos and Page knows, listen up. But it's another one of my Toby's recommendations now coming to you from far Northern California. Toby, Toby Northern California. Recommends. Uh, yeah, I just on uh, the drive up to my new hometown of Humboldt County, California, I just finished a book that I highly recommend. Uh, again, I feel like I'm recommending these books that were <laughs> very popular like two years ago. So probably if you're that into books, you've already heard of it. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It's called Detransition Baby uh, by Tori Peters. And I loved it. Um, it's a five star for me. I've mentioned many times on this podcast that I love books that give me a kind of a way into a world that I know nothing about and did definitely on the outside of. And this book is an incredible version of that. It really, it touched me. It's very, very funny. Um, and I could not recommend it highly enough. And I believe, Bailey, isn't it on your to-read list? It is. I hope it gets chosen. Um, hey, hey. I'm nope. trying to look at Dylan and see if it's the one chosen. <laughs> I can't tell. Um, Finger on the scale. Yeah, I'm really excited to read it. Toby, can you share what it's about? I know it has to do with like a couple trying to have a baby, but they're trans, so they have to detransition to have a baby. Is that right? No, oh. <laughs> uh, but it is even more it is even more complicated than that. So uh, imagine, if you will, in the past, two trans women mm -hmm. in a relationship with each other. One of those trans women detransitions, which is something that I didn't even know was a thing, but mm -hmm. you know makes sense that it's a thing, and lives life as a man. Mm -hmm. He believes he is sterile because of the hormones that he took and and ends up getting a cis straight woman pregnant and then these three people have to become involved or don't have to become but choose to become involved in each other's lives in an attempt to possibly raise this baby together um and if that sounds complicated oh boy that's just the setup <laughs> and it's it's really it's really handled i think i mean obviously the author is a member of the trans community and it just really rings with truth. Like, you know, you can trust this source. You know she knows what she's talking about. And uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. That's great. I'm really excited for that one to be picked. Dylan, is it picked? Dylan, well, blink twice if it's picked. You'll have to see. Why are you saying it like that? Mm. <laughs> also, you know, blinking is a terrible... Scream real loud if it's picked. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Scream twice. I have been attempting to befriend our local bookseller. It's not really working. 
I came in. Chevalier's? Yeah. The lady that works mm-hmm. there, she really likes Maggie and I want her to like me to be my friend. So I came in <laughs> and I talked to her about To Paradise and she said she was reading it. And so when I finished it, I was like, I just wanted to talk about it. And she did not seem interested. Guys. Did you try to do that today? Yes. You mean a Sunday? Yes. Their busiest day where there's a long line of people. Okay, but she should want to be my friend. <laughs> I think it's fair. Yeah. Thanks, Toby. I need advice on making friends. It's been a while. <laughs> Bailey, I'm your friend. Thanks, Toby. That's my that's my advice. <laughs> well, Bailey, you'll have an opportunity to talk about it soon. I just wanted her to think I was cool because I read the book. Oh, man. You are cool, Bailey. Thank you. Well, I will just say that I've been really good. As I said, no shame. But I always mm-hmm. check the little free library as I walk past because I have to. It's just part of me. And the other day, we were having an issue because our baby Maggie suddenly doesn't like baths. And I'm like, what's up with this? It's weird because she loves baths. Is her first word like shower? I demand (laughs) shower. She's like pointing at the shower head. Yeah, exactly. But she Mm -hmm. does like the pigeon books, like the pigeon... Don't let the pigeon drive the bus. The pigeon has to go to school, etc. Because she likes shaking yeah. her finger at the pigeon and saying, no, no. Anyway, I was walking past the little free <laughs> library thinking about this dilemma. Opened it. Inside found the pigeon needs a bath. It, it was like a magic little free library moment that the little free library provided what I need, what I needed. And Maggie very much liked the pigeon book. Um, Do you know who put it in there? Who? The pigeon? I guarantee you. It's the woman from Chevalier's. She's just <gasps> super shy. Yeah, she's trying to be your friend back. This is just her securitist way of doing that. Ooh. How do I get how do I get in contact with her? I should leave two paradise in the book in the little free yeah. library. There you go. So you're not keeping it on your shelf. No, no, no spoilers. <laughs> it's gonna be a thing you're gonna recommend her to listen to the podcast, except don't listen to the last episode. Yeah. Don't listen to the one where I <laughs> talk about how I'm desperate to be your friend. <laughs> um one okay. Other non-Bailey members of the podcast can help me out with this quandary. Rude. I read the audiobook for the book Devil House by John Darnielle. It's a huge bestseller right now, and it might pop up on the podcast eventually. John Darnielle, for those of you that don't know, is the lead singer of the Mountain Goats, and apparently a true crime aficionado. Who knew? That tracks. The ending is so divisive between the audience, and Bailey was asking if uh, she should read it or not, and I'm debating whether if she doesn't like the ending, then it's going to be a thing where it's like, why'd you waste my time with this book? I don't usually think that way. Endings don't ruin books for me like they do for Toby. (laughs) I I saw my name coming over the horizon there. But (laughs) It's, that's true though right toby like you've said like yeah. you really like a book but then the ending's bad and you're like no i can't recommend it yeah and there's a lot of good yeah. stuff about it where like it, it's a thing where it's like do you recommend it to somebody if you know that if they don't like the ending they're not going to like the book well i think what you do is say what you said which is like the ending can be divisive um and if anything yeah. that makes it more interesting to me and if anything bailey's just going to read it even harder and then blame me even more <laughs> i'm going to read it even harder well, Dylan, the question is, did you personally enjoy the ending? I am in Toby's camp that I think endings can definitely ruin a thing. Mm-hmm. I do have to say I give it four out of five stars, though, because there are some sections that are so well done that it was kind of worth it for the trip, even though I feel very angry with the ending. And there's also a huge middle part that turns into an Arthurian legend written in that style for like a good chunk of it. And it makes no sense. Huh. This is interesting. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if it's related to any of the books I'm reading this week. Hmm. About some huge tunnel changes. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Maybe we put it in the Little Free Library. We sit in the bushes and watch the lady pick it up from Chevalier's. We see how she (laughs) reacts. We watch her read the whole thing and then pop out and say, so what do you think? And this is going to sound mean, 
but I'd recommend it to Bailey. Rude. But if it was somebody that I was like making a new acquaintance with and like kind of in the new friendship level with, I probably wouldn't recommend it to then. Well. Because I know you well enough that you're not going to break up with me because I gave you a bad book recommendation. I feel like the book recommendation is out there without that happen. What, what if that was in our prenup? And if there was a person that would break up my marriage, it of course would be the lead singer of the Mountain Goats. We're going to make it through this intro if it kills us. <laughs> We're going to make it after all. Um, on that note, Andrew, um, I am dying to know what you thought of this book that's on everybody's list. I know mm-hmm. you read the most, the most popular book we've ever had on this podcast. Andrew, what book did you read this week? Oh, heck yes. I read How Soccer Explains the World, colon, an unlikely, which is in brackets, theory of globalization by Franklin Four. Goal! I like how he's even doubting himself. In, in, in the title, he's like, I don't know if this is real. Meh. We'll see. <laughs> that would be weird if someone wrote an essay. Sorry, if someone wrote a textbook about it with a colon question, and then it turns out the answer is not really. <laughs> so how does soccer explain the world? They're both round. Yep, they're round. Um, they both were started potentially to keep English school boys from doing illicit acts. Uh, no, um, <laughs> I, though that's, I think, apocryphal. Anywho, so let's talk a little bit about how soccer explains the world and on like, a theory of globalization by Franklin Fuller. Um, here's a little grounding paragraph. In 10 long read style essays, journalist Franklin Four seeks to explore how soccer, football, influences, informs, shapes, and strikes at the global trends that form our world. Each essay approaches a different socio-political phenomena and how it mixes with a rabid fan bases and unscrupulous actors. How a simple game has spread across the world and weaved its way into the fabric of the earth. Hmm. Of the earth. Of the earth. Uh, yeah, so uh, to dive a little deeper. Um, so basically, I, I think the title tries to do too much work for the book <laughs> because really what it is, is it's stories from global soccer, either history or present, keeping in mind that the present, I think this book came out in 2003, 2004, um, is very different than now. We'll talk about that. But so it, it takes a different aspect of the world or a, a cool historical thing and, and really digs into it. And it, it actually is a lot of fun, believe it or not. But I think that <laughs> the title and subtitle with a brackets in it does a little bit of a disservice to the book. Book, I feel like there could have been a cooler title. I feel like Andrew is saying this while he's shaking the book in my face. Like, it actually is a lot of fun. <laughs> so, um, as I said in my little intro, there are 10 sections of the book. They range from titles such as, they all have the, the beginning, um, How Soccer Explains, and they range from such subtitles as How Soccer Explains the Gangster's Paradise, How mm. Soccer Explains the Survival of the Top Hats, How Soccer Explains um, the American Culture Wars, the Jewish Question, the Pornography of Sects, the Sentimental Hooligan. Etc. It sounds like soccer is responsible for a lot of problems in the 20th century. Or is it a view to le- a lens through which to view those problems, Dylan? And so it's hard to describe this book in, in more detail than their essays about how these things work. Um, I can give you a couple examples. For example, it starts with a few ones that are more rooted in like the hooligan culture or historic rivalries. So it deals with the first one, which is called How, how Soccer Explains um, the Gangster's Paradise, is about uh, a club in Serbia uh, called Krivena Zvezda or Red Star Belgrade. Um, and how the ultras, or the um, as they were called, the ultra bad boys, uh, the rabid fan bases of that actually took part and became like a strike force literally in the Bosnian genocide because of being recruited through being soccer fans. And mm. then there's also the, you get a little lens into um, Protestant versus uh, Catholic Ireland and how that actually plays out weirdly in Glasgow, Scotland of all places, 
with the old firm Darby between uh, Rangers and Celtic football clubs. Celtic was the refuge of the people who fled from Ireland uh, during the potato famine. And it was where the Catholics were involved and the Rangers have like really leaned into how we're proud Protestants and we're the Billy boys who are going to walk ominously through your town on July 12th to let you know that Protestants still control this area. Yikes. All these things that trace to soccer in in interesting ways. Uh, It starts there. It goes into more theory things later on, like maybe more forward thinking, sort of guessing where things might go. But there you go. So I'm going to go into my orcs and elves. And uh, I I wish I could give you more context than that. But again, they're disparate essays. So it's hard to give you a more of a unifying thought than that. Um, So elves, first of all, I mean, like I'm the target audience for this book. (laughs) in that I have a baseline understanding of football and teams involved, specifically European football, which is what a lot of this is about. Both at at the time this book was written in 2004, I have a sense of what teams were popular then. And then especially now, I like this is one of my passions outside of book reading is I I follow these things. And so it was absolutely fascinating to me, especially learning the history. It was I I texted Bailey this, but I said it was like taking a facilitated Wikipedia spiral. So (laughs) like I would read something and be like, I want to learn more about that. Thank you for clicking down and I would have Wikipedia also open on my phone to like dig farther in like okay who's this warlord archon who ended up doing the, like it, it was fascinating um, it's like a guided journey through interesting history and weirdness that's soccer related so something that I would do on my own which is like getting into that Wikipedia spiral but Franklin helped me out and gave me a little map it sounds like uh, sounds like nonfiction like paradise basically like all the non all the nonfiction facts you could ever desire like in your own specific tastes laid out for you yeah it was great Beyond like how it was interesting sort of historically, it was, and this is, uh, I know we, we we listen to podcasts enough to get away from the current events of the world, but I think it, it's important to say that, you know, uh, we stand with Ukraine. We want this, the war and the illegal invasion to end as soon as possible. Saying that it was weirdly timely to, to read this book because it happened in 2004. And I don't know if people are following this, but the owner of Chelsea Football Club is a Russian oligarch named Robin Abramovich, who's being forced to sell Chelsea. And it literally talks about, there's a whole chapter about him buying it because he's a Jewish man who has buying Chelsea who had historical anti-Semitic past. And so now reading that today with all the new context, because it also says like, who knows what's going to happen? I'm like, I know they become incredibly <laughs> successful and they all love him. And then they get weirdly uh, problematic when he leaves and they decide to start to defend him. <laughs> yeah. That would be insane if he does, if in this book from 2003 about soccer, he like calls COVID and Ukraine and he just says like, what's going to happen? <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, wait, are you saying that the, the book, uh, how soccer explains the back, black Carpathians, uh, the, the the section about the Ukrainian identity versus Soviet and also racism is not relevant to today because that's Whoa. also in this book. Wow. So it's like weirdly prescient in some ways. Here's the thing, guys. This is why you don't question the choosing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so like that was it was crazy, especially with all that's going on to have a book that was sort of a time capsule in a way and being able to bring context from today in. Again, I am perhaps catered to in this in that I'm separately following, you know, the intricacies of the ownership of a soccer team in, in England. Um, another elf um, is is sort of in general I want to call out the first half of the book which is um, more rooted in historical things versus the like predictive things um, even though he did as we have some weirdly prescient sections the historical deep dives he did were inc- were incredibly cool aside from the other ones I mentioned there's um, a section about a, a, a Jewish soccer team in Austria who no one could really find any memory of he goes to Vienna can't find anybody who's who was could remember them playing goes to New York can't find anybody finds like one guy in Sweden who knows a little bit and he's like oh they show up in this movie um, that 
that Hitler forced um, Jewish filmmakers to make for him called uh, Hitler Gives the City to the Jews about the Treasonstadt uh, concentration camp. Uh, they show up in that film. Uh, and so like, it, and the history ones that this is me showing what I like, but the ones that were rooted in history were my favorite sections. Uh, beyond that, he is a clear, concise writer. He doesn't waste any of his words. You can sort of tell he comes from a journalistic background and he uh, helpfully and sort of refreshingly uh, announces his biases. He yep. is a strongly left leaning person. So he makes no bones about that and he calls it out. Hmm. Uh, and he is a fan of the Barcelona football team, Barcelona F- FC Barcelona. Um, and so he's like, guess what? I'm sort of turning a blind eye to some of the problematic things and I'm going to have a whole chapter praising uh, praising Barcelona. <laughs> uh, but he calls it out. So it, it's fun. Yeah, he's honest about it. That's fine. Yeah, you don't have to guess at his beliefs. He is telling you. Um, yeah, and so all of that are, are, are my elves. Uh, to go to my orcs, you can't really get around the fact that this is a book from another time because it is almost 20 years old. Um, it doesn't espouse like outdated ideas or like have a lot of problematic language and it's not like it's not like we're reading a book from the 30s and have to deal with that sort of incongruousness but because it sort of as i said attempts to guess the future and it's sometimes eerily correct as we talked about um but it other times he just kind of predicts things that haven't really panned out or like i know enough information to know that this doesn't go the way it seems like it's gonna go like for example there's a chapter about italian soccer and silvio berlusconi i know silvio berlusconi uh, no longer owns the ac milan i know that he's been sort of kicked out of that and sort of is trying to weasel his way in and he's no longer in power in Italy in the way that he was at least when this book came out. So this p- chapter predicting how that's going to go sort of ends up falling flat just as an example. It's like when you watch a sci-fi film and they're like, there's going to be flying cars in 1999 and you're like, yeah, nope, you're wrong. When the movie opens up, it's like the wasteland of 2019. It's like, ooh, they should just wait three years. Mm-mm. And yeah, so I mean, that's not any fault of the book, but it, you know, it, it affects whether I would recommend it to people because, you know, it's not written, I don't think, to be a history. It is a theory to reflect in a mirror to reflect the time it was written. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, and that sort of brings me to my overall orc for it, which is just that I don't feel like I could recommend this book to people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I had a great time reading it, but. Like, beyond people being interested in soccer, which I'm interested in, I don't know that other people are going to be interested in his, like, style of argument. I don't know that people are going to be as interested in the soccer. I don't know that people are going to, like, be able to find a grounding because it is sort of outdated information. So I can't, like, say, hey, you know what book you should read now? you got free time. You have one book to read this month. <laughs> this book from 2004 about globalization and soccer. That said, I had a wonderful time. So I'm going to go with four stars just because there was a little bit where it just, like, didn't quite, isn't quite... Uh, a modern read in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But boy, how did I have a good time? (laughs) Oh, great. I love that. You can recommend it to yourself. You can recommend it to past (laughs) Andrew when you time travel back in time. I will. I think this is one of the most relatable things about the podcast about getting to read list books off your shelf. Mm -hmm. It's a very relatable thing because a lot of books on people's shelves aren't like, you know, these huge, big uh, epics that like I was going to read someday. Also, a lot of nonfiction books pop up there. And nonfiction. What are you saying? Nonfiction (laughs) books expire. (laughs) Yeah. Like I have a lot of books on my shelf about like the Afghanistan war and the Iraqi war that were not written like you know in the mid 2010s and i know that like i've had it before when i've read a book and it's like oh well this is great to know what they were thinking at the time but this is why i got rid of my history of feminism not that i am (laughs) an anti-feminist but because it was outdated it was from like 2006 stop laughing at me um (laughs) no it makes (laughs) sense 
it is just funny to, it is just funny to be like oh history of feminism in the recycling you go <laughs> but yeah no it's just interesting that like there's certain books where you kind of have to read it in the moment otherwise you'll have to wait till a podcast to force you to read it i also like that you know the book is made for andrew and it's like past andrew yeah. was helping out yeah. present andrew yeah no and again it, like I, I i think it was a wonderful read i'm really glad i did it i just i'm not expecting all the pages to back order to, to find <laughs> copies of this and in order it now <laughs> um toby um do you know how soccer works or do you have any facts about soccer or this this man that wrote this book that i didn't forget his name uh the first two are page no but the <laughs> last one is page yes yeah um i have some facts about franklin four i actually have one uh pretty startling fact about him and then some other very minor facts so I'll say he, uh, first of all, you know, this is my first uh, fact-finding mission back from, you know, being on the RV trip. And uh, what a combo of authors. Uh, there's <laughs> Franklin Foer, who um, really trickily wrote this book, you know, whatever, 20 years ago almost, and then just recently published a much more popular, much more contemporaneous book. So all of the interviews and all of the press he did are about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's one other reason why it's a little bit tricky to research him, and I'll get into that into that uh, just in just a second. So Franklin Foer was born on July 20th, 1974. He is currently a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's a former editor of The New Republic. Um, he was born to a Jewish family. Um, he's the son of Albert Foer, a lawyer, and Esther Safran Foer. <gasps> he is the Wait, elder. What? He is the elder brother of novelist Jonathan Safran Foer. <laughs> Flip the table. What? Oh my. <laughs> God, the Atlas Obscura guy? This is the Atlas Obscura guy? Uh, yeah, is it the Atlas Obscura? Oh my gosh! I don't think he. I don't think he is Atlas Obscura guy actually, because there's another Foer. There's another Foer brother, Joshua Foer, uh-huh. who is uh, who is credited here as a freelance journalist, and I believe he's the Atlas Obscura guy. Everything is illuminated right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I really had to um, hold myself back from texting you guys that fact, and I was like, I'm just gonna have to let it come out on the podcast. This is huge. Anyway, um, he, he graduated from Columbia University in 1996, and he now lives in Washington, D.C. So, uh, Foer's written for Slate. He's written for New York Magazine. Um, he was the editor of the New Republic from 2006 to 2010. Uh, he resigned by his account because of exhaustion over an interminable search for a patron who could save the magazine. Whoa. Um, yeah, you know, that time when all print was dying. Uh, I think that's happened. How many times do you think he called his brother? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Hey, you're getting a lot of money recently. Yeah. He became editor again in 2012, um, recruited by the elusive patron Chris Hughes. He, uh, his book, How Soccer Explains the World, was published in 2004. That's pretty much all we have the information on that. I don't think it made Heck yeah, it was. too big of a splash <laughs> at the time. Um, he also co-edited a book called Jewish Jocks um, with a writer named Mark Tracy, uh, which was published in 2012. That's funny. He, I can see the seeds of that book in this because uh, the section called How Soccer Explains the Jewish Question relates to Jewish uh, athletes and and how that is a phenomenon that is sometimes derided, but also has a rich history. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that book won the National Jewish Book Award in 2012. um, And Foer has described it as an effort to avoid the, quote, simple hagiography, close quote, he found in some of the many existing books about Jewish sports figures. And I wanted to include that because I had to look up the word hagiography and it means writing about the lives of saints. So I learned a new word. That's a word that 
like I'll come across and be like, I know what that means. But if you were to ask me what it means, I didn't know what it means. That's exactly my experience. <laughs> That's why I was so happy to look it up. Uh, in 2017, uh, Four published World Without Mind, colon, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, which was named a New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2017. Um, so that is a much more popular, a much bigger book than How Soccer Explains the World. So How unfortunately, <laughs> I do not have very much more than this. I have a few short excerpts from an interview he gave with Mother Jones way back in 2004 about um, How Soccer Explains the World. So that's all you're going to get. Well, Toby, I mean, I'm still reeling from the first fact. So, I mean, you can do no wrong. You can do no wrong. Once I had that Jonathan Seffer for fact in the bank, I was like, hit save, go to bed. <laughs> Done. Done. So MotherJones.com asks, what do you think it is about soccer that makes it such a natural forum for political and social conflicts to play out? Four answers. Compare European soccer with American sporting teams. Our teams represent such broad geographic areas and don't really represent anything local. What truly differentiates a Yankees from a Mets fan? I'm not sure. But in Buenos Aires, everyone knows what separates a Boca Juniors fan from a River Plate fan. There's a stark difference in class. Buenos Aires has something like eight different teams. So each team represents a distinct neighborhood. And when you represent something that local, you're representing very particular identities, class, ethnicity. Hmm, that's true, though. I, you never. I don't often think about like the New England Patriots. That's a very big. <laughs> that's a very big section of America versus like aren't how many clubs are there in London? I don't know. Uh, tens, tens of professional ones. There you go. Nope, there are I think six in the Premier League currently, and that's just the top division. That's a lot. That's crazy. Wow, I wish I knew what any of that meant. <laughs> uh, so Mother Jones says it also seems that some clubs, like Barcelona in Spain, function almost as what Marxists might call harmless venues for fans to express their frustrations toward their government. Four answers. Sure. Barca is sort of this opiate of the masses. During the Franco dictatorship, it was a harmless outlet for Catalans to vent against the regime. At the same time, Barca, which is my favorite team, also represents something more than a mere distraction. I think it represents a healthy vision for what a nation should look like and how it should behave. We were talking about the sociology of the game. Well, Barca is a team that genuinely manages to transcend class. You go to games and you see fat bourgeois guys with cigars sitting next to street cleaners. There's this vision of what a liberal society should look like that's embedded in the concept of the team and the Catalan nationalism it represents. Um, and that's pretty much it. There's a, he, he goes on to many more specific things in the interview, but those are like the most soundbitey ones. Um, and all of his other interviews are about his latest book. So I didn't know if I wanted to tell you his thoughts on AI and stuff like that. So I won't. All right. Um, but he seems like a nice guy. And uh, I hope he gets along with his brother. All right. Well, How Soccer Explains the World, subtitle I Don't Remember by Franklin Four, four stars. Four, four, four. Oh, Andrew, are you keeping it on your shelf or are you going to, are you are you done with this one? I'm keeping the heck out of this. It's great. Nice. I'm going to kick it into a free library. Ooh. No way. <laughs> uh, but this book was, for me, a little slice of paradise. But Bailey, do you know how to get to paradise? Ooh, I do. I have so many thoughts on my book this week. Okay. Which was? <laughs> Which was? My book was To Paradise by Hanya Yanagahara. Whew. I hear she lives in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, that's really good, Andrew. Yes. Um, okay. I have so many thoughts. I have so many like crazy scribblings written down, but I'm going to just like go from the heart here. 
Okay, well, can you give us a really fast log line? How dare you? Yes. That's not an easy task with this one, by the way, Pedro's. It's not. Um, I do want to put it out there that Toby has read this book. And I know, mm-hmm. although we haven't gotten into it until now, save it for the podcast, that Toby has a completely different opinion about the book than I do. And on mm-hmm. Goodreads, it's very divisive. So I want to put it out there that what I say is not necessarily what everybody thinks. And I'm going to have Toby hold his rebuttal until the end. Applause. Oh, there's applause. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Two Paradise is the latest book by Hanya Yanagahara, who wrote the amazing doorstopper books, A Little Life and The People in the Trees, which I both really loved. I mean, a lot of people really loved A Little Life, but I think she's an incredible author and I was really excited. This is one of the books that I pre-ordered because I was just so excited to see what she would write next. She's an auto-buy author for me. Anything she writes, I'm going to get. This book is not like the other books and not like really any book I've read. It is told in three parts, which are really three distinct novels. They don't really have any connection between them aside from the characters have the same name, but they're not the same people. And they take place a hundred years apart and they happen to take place partly in Washington Square Park. Other than that, the stories are not that connected. So we start part one, is called Washington Square. It takes place in 1893, and it's very much like a uh, Henry James-type romance, except in this world, it's an alternate history where there are certain states that broke off from the other states after the Civil War, and the states... Um, that include New York, recognize gay marriage in the same way they recognize straight marriage. So it's like a grandfather is trying to set his son up with, you know, an arranged marriage, but the arranged marriage is with an older man. So that's, it's a little bit different from what you would expect from that time. Um, The second part is called Lipo Wow Nahili. Um, It takes place in 1993. Um, It's split into two parts. One part takes place um, in New York City, 1993, during the AIDS epidemic um, and follows a character who's having an affair with his boss and he's trying to deal with his identity, having been the person who would have become the king of Hawaii before they were colonized by the United States. So the first half is about him and the other half is about his father and it tells sort of the history of their family and the dissolution of their dynasty a little bit. The last part is also the longest part. It comes halfway through this 700-page book. It takes place in Zone 8 in the year 2093, so in the future. And this is a future where the United States has become a totalitarian state following a succession of many pandemics. And the story alternates between this affectless woman, um, one of the only women in the book, um, and her grandfather um, told through letters. Um, So you get sort of both sides of some events told from somebody that has um, very little affect versus somebody who understands what's going on and can give the context. So that's the logline. Very snappy, huh? Yeah. Bailey, I don't envy you in having to try to explain that because i that's about as concise as you could possibly put it, <laughs> Pedro's. It's very convoluted. It's very convoluted. Um, things connecting the stories. Um, the idea of pandemics, are that's in every one of them. Grandparents making choices for their grandchildren that they don't necessarily want. Gay relationships, um, power imbalances, colonialization, and most obviously, like I said, the names. Um, so the names David Bingham, Charles Griffith, and Edward Bishop show up in different iterations throughout. And my understanding is that those are three men who colonized Hawaii. Is that right, Toby? That's correct. They're part of the original missionaries that went over and started the process uh, in our real actual history um, of colonizing Hawaii. 
Gotcha. So, okay, that's all That's all the like synopsis stuff. Now I want to get into my, my thoughts. I have very strong feelings about this book. Give it to us. <laughs> my feeling is that- Two stars. <laughs> okay, the first two books- I did not like. I had a really hard time getting into them. If I weren't reading this book for a podcast, and if I were the type of person to abandon a book, I would have DNF'd the book. I could not get into the Henry James story. It just felt like I didn't have a lot of interest in the characters, and I didn't think it was enough of a hook that it was just gay relationships. I wanted more than just that. The second part, I felt like I already heard a lot of stories like about during the AIDS epidemic, which is interesting. But what was most interesting was the Hawaii aspect aspects that were kind of hidden or kept until the end. And I didn't understand at all how they connected. And I just found it very, very slow. With that said, imagine Bailey reading the book, (laughs) starting section three and just letting a sigh of relief. Because for me, section three was incredible. Five stars. Like it gave me the sense of how I felt when I was reading A Little Life or The People in the Trees of just like, oh, I'm in the presence of a master writer who's created this amazing world and the dynamics between the two characters are so interesting. The combination of the present first person present narration versus the epistolary letters from the grandfather, it really played off each other really well. The writing was just so beautiful and the end just really hit me and I just thought, oh, it's so good. So it's really hard to rate this book because it's completely uneven. And I don't think, I think any connections you make between the three parts of the book are really just based in the reader. Like, I don't think they're really based in the text. Like some people have said like, oh, you know, it's different people playing out the same things over several generations until they get it right. And I don't think that that's really supported in the text. It felt like Hanya had three different ideas and didn't want to commit all the way to one. And each one, each story isn't necessarily satisfying. Like there, you could go a lot further further with each story. And so it seems strange that she put them together. I would say almost deliberately unsatisfying. Yeah. Each of them, like deeply unsatisfying. But she even references that. Like there is one reference in the third part where she talks about the story in the first part and like the person telling the story stops at a certain point. It's like, I'll get back to that. Mm -hmm. And everybody groans. And it's like, okay, so Hanya knows what she's doing. Yeah. But it's it's so hard to judge. Um, I'm going to give two quotes and then I'm going to give my final verdict and then I'm going to let Toby out of the bag. <laughs> All right. So this first quote is from the first section, Washington Square. It takes place in 1893. And it's about our protagonist, David, talking about his love interest, Edward. He wanted to show him off, wanted to tell anyone who would listen that this was who had chosen him, that this was who he spent his days with, that this was who had brought him alive once again. But in the absence of that, he would have to be satisfied with the secret of Edward, which he carried inside him like a lick of bright white flame, something that burned bright and pure and which warmed only him and which he feared would vanish if if he examined it too closely. By thinking of him, he felt almost as if he'd conjured him, a phantom only he could see, leaning against the secretary at the back of the room behind Charles, smiling at David and David alone. So I really like that quote because it shows the really strong way of um, establishing characters and character dynamics and her way of putting into words a feeling that you've never had to put into words before. And then you read the way she writes it and you're like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. Agreed. Okay. Um, So that's from the first section. And I'm just going to give you a taste of the last section as well. So you can get a sense of the difference. 
Um, so this is right, I think, the second page of the section. So there's no context needed. Then I walked the four blocks home to our building, and it was only when I was safe inside our apartment, browning the horse meat and vegetable oil, that I remembered that it was my husband's free night and that he wouldn't be home for dinner. But by that time, it was too late to stop cooking, so I finished frying the meat and then ate it with some of the peas. Above me, I could hear the echoey sound of screams and knew that the neighbors were listening to the ceremony on their radios, but I didn't want to listen myself. And after cleaning the dishes, I sat on the couch and waited for my husband for a while, even though I knew he wouldn't be home anytime soon before finally going to bed. I picked that quote both to show the matter-of-fact protagonist, but also how because she's so matter-of-fact, she starts to say these things where you're like, what? What do you mean ceremony? What do you mean screams? What do you mean horse meat? And it provides this mystery that keeps you going. And I just couldn't stop reading and I was thrilled by the third section. So third section, five stars. First section, three stars. Second section, two stars. What do you give it overall? (sighs) Because the last section was the longest, I'm going to end up with a four star. However, you know, this is a really hard book to evaluate and I'd be really curious to hear what people think. Speaking of, Toby, what'd you think? <laughs> um, well, it's really funny because I, I mean, we really did just, if you want to know what I think, just take all of Bailey's review and invert it. Like 100%. I found myself struggling to connect with earlier books by Yanagihara. I've read both of them and and kind of got through both of them. But then I started this one and I was in the first section and I was like, wow, this is so engaging and such beautiful writing. I'm captured by the characters. Like I am, I am with it. This is five star. If the whole book is like this for me, wow, I'm so stoked. I'm so excited. So you can imagine I was a little chagrined when all of a sudden that <laughs> narrative stops in its tracks and we start another narrative which I actually also really enjoyed. I would say I gave it a four star. That's the one where we're during the AIDS epidemic. I still really liked it. I was still really invested in the characters. The writing was beautiful but you know a little bit less and then that one stopped. And then we started to get into the ones that I really didn't like, uh, the ones in Hawaii and then later on the dystopian narrative. And Bailey, when you were speaking, I think it really is hilarious because it's an inverse where it's like you didn't like the Henry James style uh, romance. You Uh felt you had heard it before. You weren't charmed by it while I was. Uh And you were enthralled and kept in suspense by the dystopian novel where while I felt the same way better that you did about the Henry James section where I was like, this is just not a good version of this. I've read so many dystopian novels, so much sci-fi, you know, like I felt like Yanadagahara wanted to play with that toolbox, but then didn't really do it that well. And I love the Henry James, like slow romance and the, you know, and, and the kind of, I felt she had a really amazing deft hand in kind of writing this alternate history of the, the free states, as she calls them. So yeah, I don't know. I basically, what I thought about the book was the exact opposite of Bailey, which is I loved the first, you know, half to maybe less than a half. And then because that last section was my least favorite and it's more than half the book by the end of this book I was struggling um, I will say the end is pretty good I did enjoy the ending so it brought it up for me but I think overall for me it's a it's a three star mm. so I guess that means Andrew has to decide who is right and who is wrong <laughs> mm-hmm well, I haven't read the book, but my dear friend Dan, who is very smart, rated it five stars and said his review on Goodreads was, sorry, haters. <laughs> That's me. He's a page no. I'm really curious. I mean, people are talking about this as like, somebody wrote that this is better than War and Peace, which I, yeah. I, I doubt what? it. I know. Who wrote that? Leo Tolstoy. He's down on his writing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's an awards conversation. It's a huge, buzzy book, mm-hmm. but it's just so experimental and different. There's so much to say. 
we have a running bit that Hanayana Gihira just hates her publisher. And so she keeps coming in with like the worst <laughs> ideas to her publisher. And like the publisher must have read this where it's like, Hanya, this is three novels. We can make like three times the amount of money if you just publish them all separately. No, no, no. No, I want it to be one 700 page book. All right. Well, Toby, I am dying to know what facts you have because as Andrew referenced, the bio for Hanayana Gihira just says Hanayana Gihira lives in New York City. <laughs> what what facts do you have on, on our author friend? I have quite a few facts, actually. I have some facts and I have some some articles about her. She's an interesting woman. Uh, Hanya Yanagahara uh, was born in 1975 in Los Angeles. Um, her father, Ronald Yanagahara, is from Hawaii and her mother was born in Seoul. Yanagahara is partly of Japanese descent through her father. When she was a kid, she moved all over the place. She lived in Hawaii, New York, Maryland, California, and Texas. She ended up attending Punahou High School in Hawaii. Um, Yanagahara has said in the past that her father introduced her as a girl to the work of Philip Roth and to, quote, British writers of a certain age like Anita Bruckner, Iris Murdoch, and Barbara Pym. She has said that the contemporary writers I admire most are Hilary Mantel, Kazuo Ishiguro, and John Banville. So for the podcast, we're a two out of three on those. Yeah. She graduated from Smith College in 1995. My mommy went to Smith. <laughs> Thank you. And then moved to New York and worked for several years as a publicist. She also wrote and was an editor for Condé Nast Traveler. Remember that magazine? No. Sure. Um, I feel like it's still around. Her first novel, The People in the Trees, uh, was published in 2013 to uh, very good reviews. Uh, And then her big, big hit, A Little Life, was published in March 2015, and it received widespread critical acclaim. It was shortlisted for the 2015 Man Booker Prize for Fiction. It won the 2015 Kirkus Prize for Fiction, and it defied the expectations of its editor, of Yanagihara's agent, and of the author herself, who all thought it would not sell well. I mean, it is a tough sell. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yanagihara has been interviewed about writing A Little Life in particular uh, and said that the writing experience was actually pretty great. Uh, She has said that, quote, writing the book at its best is, quote, as glorious as surfing. It felt like being carried aloft on something I couldn't conjure, but was lucky enough to have caught, if just for a moment. At its worst, I felt I was somehow losing my ownership over the book. It felt oddly like being one of those people who adopt a tiger, a lion, when the cat's a baby and cuddly and manageable, and then watch in dismay and awe as it turns on them as an adult. See, that's a that's a great metaphor. This is why she's the yeah. best. Yeah. I mean, she's a good writer. This explains why Condé Nast Traveler was like 300 pages every issue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, funny you should mention that. In 2015, she left Condé Nast to become the deputy editor at T, the New York Times style magazine. Stylish. Uh, she has said that um, after she had published her best-selling novel, A Little Life, people in the publishing industry are kind of baffled by her decision to work what they would call a day job at T. Um, you know, she makes enough money as a novelist to not have a day job. Um, but she says uh, she's never done it any other way. And that's in reference to having a day job and then writing fiction on the side. Mm-hmm. In 2017, she became editor-in-chief of T. Uh, okay, so here we go. I'm going to read some excerpts from uh, two different profiles on her, give you a kind of window into who she is. These are first. These first excerpts are from a profile in The New Yorker by the author D.T. Max. Uh, when the author says she here, the she refers to Yanagihara. She writes at night for long stretches when the words are flowing. She completed her new novel, To Paradise, which stages three radically different narratives set in three centuries at the same townhouse in Washington Square. After she has hit on a plot and a structure, she sticks to them as if revising risks collapse. As she put it, 
Quote, once I poured the concrete, I don't rebuild the foundation, close quote. Despite the extraordinary success of her fiction career, she regards it as a, quote, slightly shameful sideline. Indeed, she knows almost no other novelists because she isn't comfortable among them. Quote, I feel that a writer is not something that I am. It is something that I do. And it's something I do in private. Mm. So here DT Max talks about um, being in her home. The living room was split by an enormous double-sided bookcase with some 10,000 books on it. Whoa. Yanagihara pointed out some early American furniture that her father, who was now 76, had given her. Her parents currently live in Hawaii. One was a tester bed from the 1810s. She slept in it as a child and still does. (laughs) Another was a Philadelphia Chippendale chair. Both items were out of fashion and therefore worth noting, she said, but that's not why they mattered to her. Quote, I was allowed to sit in the chair once a year for a photo, she recalled, until I got to be a teenager. And then I wasn't allowed to sit in that chair anymore. She paused. But now the chair's mine. (laughs) (laughs) I really like that little quote. I'll show you, mom and dad. I will take that chair and sit in whenever I want. So here we are talking about the similarities between To Paradise and A Little Life. Although the arch symmetries of To Paradise seem distant from the tempests of A Little Life, the central preoccupation is the same. How our need to be cared for leaves us perpetually vulnerable to hurt. Yanagihara said that shame was the interlocking theme of To Paradise. In each section, characters are, quote, ashamed about essentially being unloved, about being unwanted, about not being special. She quoted a passage from the novel, quote, while loving someone is not shameful, it is shameful not to be loved at all, close quote. She added that unloved people tend to, quote, feel deficient as if they had somehow failed to live up to what it means to be a human. I think she's pushing there. I don't, I don't see that as an overarching connection. Sorry. Yeah. I think she's wrong. (laughs) Sorry, author of the work itself. (laughs) Um, Gahara has a gift for creating sympathetic characters and putting them into conflict with one another, but the book's key conceit feels blurry. What is the significance of the three stories all taking place in the same Greenwich Village mansion, with three butlers all named Adams? Gahara told me that it had no particular meaning. Yeah. And she clearly took pleasure in constructing such illusory patterns. Quote, I'm okay with a little bit of confusion. I trust the reader is going to surrender to the spell of the book. If she hadn't published A Little Life, she wouldn't be able to do this, I don't think. Mm, Yeah. I have two more things um, that kind of addressed a little bit of the controversy that surrounds um, Yanagihara. Here, and so this is from that same profile. Once again, nearly all the central relationships are homosexual. I asked Yanagihara if there was a special significance to this aspect of her creative output. She did not find the question meaningful. Quote, I don't think there's anything inherent to the gay male identity that interests me, she said. If I were putting on my dime store psychologist hat, I would say more that it's easier, freer, and safer to write about your own feelings as an outsider when cloaked in the identity of a different kind of outsider. Okay. So take from that what you will. Um, And then this last little quote here uh, is from an interview uh, with The Guardian, and the interviewer is Claire Armistead. Claire writes, There's an unflinchingness in Yanagihara's writing that can seem gratuitously punishing, a reminder of the little girl who was more interested in disease than people. This book and its champions seem bound to each other by their mutual disgust and discomfort, wrote Daniel Mendelssohn in the New York Review. Quote, It's rare to encounter literary discussion of such dissonant zeal, such enthralled distress, observed the Australian critic B.J. Silcox in an essay summary 
summarizing the little life phenomenon. How did Yonagihara herself feel about inspiring such strong feelings? Quote, I don't read anything about my books and I'm not on Twitter, <laughs> which is, as I understand it, where the majority of these conversations tend to get slugged out, she says. She is particularly impatient with the hashtag own voice movement, which might question her right as a woman to tell the stories of gay men. Quote, it's very dangerous. I have the right to write about whatever I want. The only thing a reader can judge is whether I have done so well or not. Mm. So that is the closing bit of research I have about Hanya Yanagihara. And there you go. Awesome. Well, you know, there's so much to say about this book, but Two Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara, four stars and only read the third part. And that's the final, final verdict. <laughs> no, the first two, the first two. <laughs> Um, Andrew, do you have a game for us? I do. I do. It's in three parts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the name of the game this week is the name in the game. Ooh. Whoa. Tricked you a little bit there, didn't I, punks? <laughs> So I am looking forward to potentially reading To Paradise at some point. So I didn't dig into it very far in terms of using it to uh, influence the game. So this game is mostly based on soccer. And by that, I mean entirely based on football. <laughs> um, so you might know this about different teams uh, in, in England specifically. They have nicknames. Arsenal is known as the Gunners. Uh, Liverpool is known as the Reds. Uh, uh, there are, the Preston North End is known as the Lily Whites. All kinds of nicknames. There's other ones based on what your, your town used to make. Um, you know, the Hatters of Luton Town. Um, the, uh, the Carpetmen. All kinds of things like that. But there are some that are a little funkier and a little harder to understand. So here's the game. I'm going to give you a, a team in England and their nickname, and you're going to tell me why they had that nickname. Whoever among you it's the closest to the actual origin story of that nickname wins. Okay. A point. Fantastic. I also like that you frame this as if it's something that everybody knows because I have no concept of this. Yeah. Is it like in Ted Lasso when they're the Greyhounds? Uh, yes, exactly like that. Okay. Yes. And some and some teams have like a more direct thing. Like Darby County is called Darby County, but they have a ram on their chest. So their nickname is the Rams. All right. Okay. Wolverhampton Wanderers has a wolf on it. They're the wolves. Okay. Like, so things like that. Some of them are a little different. All right. So let's start off with, uh, let's start off with an, an, an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that dirty little giggle. Dylan, you're free to play too if you'd like, if you can, if you, if you Yay. are moved to. We're going to start with West Bromwich Albion in their nickname, The Baggies. The baggies. They're called the baggies because there's a lot of grocery stores in the area and they would bag the groceries. They'd be like the bag men. No, that was literally going to be my... Too bad. Yes. I was first. Uh, they're actually... Bailey, I'm sorry. You're so wrong. They're called the baggies because this um, team was formed in like the late 90s and they all like sagged a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, they wore their they wore their shorts like way down on their butts. Yeah. Baggy pants. Uh, you guys are actually both wrong because in order to train their footwork and to kind of focus their determination with their hands they learned how to play while playing bagpipes oh so yeah. they'd have to be able to play on tune while also kicking a ball interesting oh okay so dylan is completely incorrect <laughs> great i'm gonna give this as a split point because the origin is unsure there are two suggestions and you both sort of hit on one of the options one suggestion is that the name was bestowed on albion supporters by their rivals aston villa because of the large baggy trousers that oh. many albion fans wore nice it wasn't from the 90s because it was just <laughs> protect themselves from molten iron in the foundries <laughs> of, the black, of black country, but there you go. Um, however, the club historian says it suggests it probably comes from the term the bag men, which Bailey mentioned up, which are the people who carried the bags um, for the team. Yeah, that's not really what I said, but I'll take the point. All right, now time for one that's a little easier. You guys are right. That first one was hard. <laughs> All right, Hartlepool United. Their nickname is the Monkey Hangers. Monkey Hanger? <laughs> okay. 
they are they they were really good at pull-ups and they would just do so many pull-ups before every match and that's why they're the monkey hangers um their training style because they had to focus on their footwork was that they had to kind of run around with their arms up high and then running around and it kind of looked like a monkey when their arms were flailing what do you think football practice is (laughs) (laughs) second time you've mentioned the word footwork i assumed it's anything goes and like they're trying to train them really hard not to pick up the ball so they have to do stuff Um, you guys are both wrong. Monkey hangers. Monkey actually refers to a nickname for a monk. Um, and that's how they would hang up their, you know, frocks. So that's correct. Um, I can't in good conscience give any points for this round. <laughs> uh, it comes from a likely apocryphal tale that uh, during the Napoleonic Wars uh, on the shores of Hartlepool, a, a French ship crashed and the only survivor was a monkey that was on board. And apparently not having ever seen a Frenchman before and not having seen a monkey before, they hanged the monkey as a traitor. That was my second guess. Yes. None of you went with a literal monkey. Had anyone literally brought in a monkey, you would have gotten points. But what if the monkey was the one that sunk the ship? Yeah. Oh, oh then they really turned coat on the turncoat there. All right. So we have 0.5 points for Bailey, 0.5 points for Toby, no points for Dylan. I have two more answers uh, and a tiebreaker if we need it. All right. This one is for uh, Peterborough United, bottom of the table in the championship right now. They are nicknamed the Posh. Oh. Dylan? Um, well, because during practice, they had, in order to have them focus... <laughs> In order to have them focus on their footwork, in order to have them keep their back straight, so that way they'd have to use their legs more, they would have them run around um, with like books on their head, and they kind of looked like posh schoolboys on their great posture. Do you think that every soccer player wants to use his hands and has to be like batted away? (laughs) Okay. Well, that's actually incorrect because um, it derives from posh spice, um, and the the footwork they learned is the dancing from the Spice Girls. Okay, I'm gonna think up a different thing to say now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll say um, they were just uh, they showed up and they always had like the nicest kit. They all like their their shoes, uh, their footwork, footwork, something about footwork. They have posh footwork. (laughs) Andrew, that's what it is during practice. I'm just gonna steal Dylan's. (laughs) All right, so half a point for Toby. Yes. And half a point for Dylan. Yeah. Uh, Because this term likely came from the founder of the team, uh, was reported to have been looking for posh players for a posh new team. So basically just describing the word posh to it, Bailey receives no point because Victoria Beckham sued them because she said posh couldn't be used on merchandise because she was associated with the term. She lost the case. That's fair. All right, so Toby, you are in the lead with one point. Dylan and Bailey are both in touch, so this is perfect. It all comes down to this. Sunderland of Sunderland Till I Die, the Netflix documentary, are nicknamed the Black Cats. They're called the Black Cats because at a very key game when they were first starting, there was a black cat that showed up at the stadium and went in the middle of the field, as we've seen in other games, and the black cat kept coming back, and it became like a mascot. No, wrong. That's wrong, Bailey. It's because they all have firecrackers in their pockets and they take them out and they light them and they throw them at the opposite team at at crucial points in the game. Go, Dylan, go. (laughs) What does that have to do with black cats? They're called black cats. Those little fireworks. You never seen them? Okay. Uh, it's because when they were doing practice, they'd have to hold a black cat because it kind of like forced them to use their whole body while it was spazzing out, while they were while it was like wildly like scratching at them, and they still had to hold it while kicking the ball. So they'd have to kind of learn to separate their upper body from their lower body. I would love you to be a soccer coach and just spend all your time getting them to not use their arms. Today's practice: don't use your arms. We're going to focus on this. Yeah, no, we know. Just a long series of crates with different things in them that Dylan makes the players hold in their hands <laughs> while they play soccer. 
Try this with a tuba. Um, okay. We actually have the closest correct answer here, which is from Bailey. Yeah. Because ah. a Sunderland supporter in 1937 was reported to bring to the FA Cup final a black cat in his chest pocket as a good luck charm. That's right. And wow. that was when they brought home their first trophy. It was in the chest pocket, Dylan, so close. But Dylan, <gasps> Bailey does get the full point for that. He was Bailey holding it. 1.5. Yep, he was. But he wasn't one of the players, which was important <laughs> oh, to your thesis. Um, Bailey, that puts you at 1.5 points. Toby at one. And Dylan in last place forever. Oh, no. In this game. So congratulations, Bailey. And second, congratulations, Toby. No congratulations at all to Dylan. Meow, 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 meow. Blackheads win. Yay. <laughs> Well, thank you for that game, Andrew. It was awesome. Any reference to cats? Heck yeah. Dylan, now's the time in the podcast where you choose books for us to read next. You choose them at random. It is the choosing. The choosing. The choosing. Choose wisely, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, it sounds like you had a very global book. I don't want you to draw any conclusions, <gasps> but I'll rip off the band-aid and say number 60, Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. I love this book. I'm really excited. Jillian predicted that I was going to get this picked last time. No way. Ooh. So Jillian was off a little bit, but maybe a little clairvoyant. Ooh. <laughs> Marjan. Okay. I may or may not have nicknamed, you know, when you get a computer and you can name the computer, I named it Marjan. So, I mean, I'm unbiased about this book. Well, it's a good thing you caught me with that with hard to say authors, Bailey. Uh-oh. Because you know that their body of work is pretty complicated. Okay. With number 75, My Body by Emily Ronachowski. <gasps> Dylan, this is crazy. Interesting. Because The Choosing has picked for me three new books. Oh, yeah. This one I also just bought. Um, I'm really excited. This is Emily Ronachowski is a really famous m model, as you know. And this is a book, my understanding, that is a nonfiction book of essays about her body and like how it's been commodified. I'm very excited to read it. I can't believe it was chosen, but I mean, I'll go for it. Don't question the choosing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that means in two weeks on the podcast, Toby is reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, and I'll be reading My Body by Emily Rajikowski. Nice. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List podcast. If you think you know uh, better than the four we heard about today, Why Soccer Explains the World, write us an essay about it on iTunes, and then just go ahead and write us five stars um, on top of that essay. We'll read your essay, we'll give you critiques on it, um, and it really helps uh, raise the visibility of the podcast. Also, if your brother's Jonathan Safran Thor, <laughs> please tell him to listen to the podcast. If your brother is not Jonathan Saffenfor, word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners. Um, so tell your friends, uh, anybody you know who likes podcasts and specifically has an interest in the literary world or how soccer explains the world in general, uh, bring them over. We'd love to have them. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. 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 Go! So, we love it.